Hello, everybody, and welcome to the third episode of the Enabling Capital Microfinance Podcast. I'm your host, Carolina, an investment officer at Enabling Capital, and we're here to talk about money, about moving money to me. For those of you who had not had the chance to listen to our podcast yet, this is a podcast series to discuss the ins and outs of microfinance, impact investing, and its relating concepts. And so, for this third episode, we have an exciting agenda. The first portion of the episode, we're going to dive a little bit further into the history of enabling capital. And for the later portion, we will be discussing the different ways that we gauge the impact of our work. To do so, we have a special guest. Please welcome co-founder and managing partner at Enabling Capital, Chuck Olson. Chuck, I'm very happy to have you here with us today. And to kick our episode off, I would like to start by telling our audience about Enabling Capital itself. Enabling Capital is the advisor to the Enabling Microfinance Fund, which is an investment fund with a track record since 2008. Um, however, Enabling Capital was only created in January 2020. So Chuck, how was Enabling Capital created and for what purpose? And if the company were to achieve its impact purpose, what exactly would we be seeing? Well, when, when Remo, Roger, Xavier, and I started talking, contemplating uh, the creation of Enabling Capital, one area that we completely aligned on was that we wanted to do something different uh, than what the other impact managers were, were doing at the time and are, are continuing to, to do. And when I say different, I mean different starting with how we run the company, how we treat investees and how we treat investors, as well as employees. It's a bit surprising sometimes how in an industry that it tries to be very socially minded, how poor the corporate governance and culture can sometimes be inside some of these, these companies. We spent a lot of time discussing and um, framing in 2019 and 2020 how we wanted to, what we wanted our, our mission, vision and to be and to articulate what our corporate values should be. And we did this actually with the entire company. We started at all levels. So we had a session with the senior management team, well, several sessions actually. And then we had a couple of sessions with the, the entire company to discuss how they saw the company and the corporate values. And that was important for us because we wanted the company to be, to that we we're creating to have, um, you know, values that were, that could be lived by the company, the entire by everyone across the company. And as a result, we came up with um, our mission, which was, as Car Carolina has indicated, moving money to meaning, or M cubed, as I like to refer to it, <laughs> and, um, and our vision, which is a world where investment empowers people and embraces the planet. In addition, in addition to sort of this fundamental values and um, concept, uh, we also have a strong belief that we would like to become a multi-sector, multi-product impact investor. What does this mean? You probably hear these buzzwords uh, all the time, but basically we, we see a lot of talented individuals on the team and we want to, and we believe that we can extend sort of the experiences that we have uh, in inclusive finance that to potentially extend it into equity slash secondary funds and also to look more closely at how we can better support small and medium-sized businesses in the very markets where we are working by leveraging the, the existing relationships. We can also extend the work that we're doing on the clean cooking front in Africa to Asia 
and also leverage this work uh, to look to explore other opportunities such as a carbon fund initiative. I think there's no shortage of great ideas and concepts uh, internally at, at EQ. And that's very apparent from whenever we have a, a company-wide call or uh, we have calls across the team. It's just the only thing we need now is some time to, to achieve it, I guess. Thanks, Chuck. And speaking about these great ideas, I think a question that our listeners might have um, from the beginning is, what's behind the name Enabling Capital? Yeah, so that actually... When we were discussing the name, the potential name for the company, we wanted to make sure that the name, excuse me, conveyed what we were trying to achieve, which is to enable the investments of capital uh, into emerging and frontier markets where it is most needed. We chose the capital with a Q rather than with a C because we believe that the idea, the, the idea of the acronym EQ, uh, which also stands for Emotional Quotient, to be very appropriate because as we have seen, there's been an evolution of in, in the investing behavior that has come as a result of the work that we've been doing over the last 10 to 20 years in the investment space. And that's namely demonstrating that the importance of stakeholder capitalism, a greater self-awareness and empathy for others. And so for this reason, we felt that the, the name enabling capital or, or especially the initials EQ were particularly appropriate because it fit well within the um, within the vision, mission, and corporate values that we were trying to live by. The word enabling was part of the first fund that we, that we managed, which was the Enabling Microfinance Fund. And we liked the idea that we could extend that concept, enabling microfinance, enabling clean cooking, enabling small and medium businesses, etc., cetera, to, uh, across the various funds we hope to, to one day manage. And when enabling, enabling Capital took over the mandate, the Enabling Microfinance Fund, which we've discussed in 2020, the size of the fund was approximately $60 million, correct? Up to this date, enabling micro, the Enabling Microfinance Fund is almost at $400 million. So with this exponential growth in such little time, how would you say the distribution of the portfolio has changed? Well. This is actually kind of a, an easier question for me to answer. We just had a webinar for investors a few weeks ago where I, I kind of walked through the evolution of the EMF fund over time. And um, yes, it's true that the fund was approximately $60 million, uh, when we took it over. However, only $22 million of that 60 was actually directly invested in, into microfinance or inclusive finance institutions. And we have been able to grow and, and diversify the fund from which was, was around 18 to 20 investees to close to 100 now. And we, now, and we went from 16 countries to 35 over this time. And I think the important thing to, to mention is, is that we've not sacrificed in terms of yield that the portfolio has achieved. And in fact, we're slightly above the yield, the average yield on the portfolio performance of the fund, which is, of course, very important for the investors, has actually is actually at the highest level in the history of, of the fund. So right now, the fund is uh, performing at roughly a 12-month rolling basis of 4%, which is significant improvement over the historical performance of the fund. And I, I think this is this is um, is attributed to the, the diversification in the, of the fund that we've, we've been able to achieve over, over these last... Um, 12 to 18 months. Thanks, Chuck. 
you touched upon how the yield of the fund has not been compromised, rather quite the opposite. This is a recurring theme that we have throughout our podcast series, where we discuss with our different guests how uh, we achieve that through different perspectives. My next question is, with the growth that we've t- we've talked about, has there also been a subsequent change in the distribution of the team? Yes, in fact, there's been a significant change in the distribution of the team. When we took over the EMF, there were zero investments in Africa, not one. And uh, we started out a team of, of one, and one person in Africa, like we did in LATAM and some of the, some of the other markets, uh, of course. And we have now, as of February 2022, seven, we have the largest team in Nairobi with seven investment professionals, and as well as the head of our credit administration team there. We have also, we have, of course, as you know, Carolina, we've grown the investment teams in other regions as well. But because of the launch of the Spark Plus Fund, uh, we've been able to, and it's been important for us to grow the, the team in Africa because we see a significant potential in the, the region, so in Africa and in the Middle East, for the type of investment activity that we're looking to do. You mentioned the distribution of our portfolio in Africa, which is an exciting preamble for what is to come for the Spark Plus Fund. Um, it is also exciting to think about the potential that Enabling Capital has to become a multi-product company. Now that we talked about the composition of the company and the portfolio, I'd like to dive into the core concept of this podcast, which is moving money to meaning, as you've heard in our introduction. In a world that is essentially run by money, the best way to generate positive impact is through money, using it as a catalyst for financial inclusion and economic development. Enabling capital is mobilizing large-scale private investment to developing countries. With the substantial growth that the EMF fund has had since EQ took over the mandate, there's also a lot of pressure to deploy these funds. And so with these two forces at work, how does the team ensure that the institutions that they're investing in are operating responsibly and that the funds will ultimately have a positive impact on migrant entrepreneurs? Okay. So, I mean, one of the things that we've spent a lot of time over the years is, is building and developing our investment process. I know that's not so potentially interesting for, for many people, but it's, it's a critical part of what we do. As we've developed, we've spent a lot of time developing the analytical tools that we use to, to so that we understand, we're sure, relatively certain, I should say, that we understand that our investees from both a financial and also social perspective in every industry. There are bad actors uh, that do more damage in an industry than, than good. In the impact investing space, this includes lenders that don't necessarily take the time to understand the borrowers and provide them too much or, or perhaps even too little capital and thereby creating their own financial and social dilemmas. By us conducting a thorough due diligence on our investees, we can better understand how these investees treat their clients uh, and stakeholders so that the company from companies from the funds that we are that we advise continue to empower people and embrace the planet. So our focus is always to work with responsible lenders and businesses that support local communities. That's our fo- that is our focus. We get a lot of questions about our ability to sustain that our approach or sustain the, the yield or continue to some people say cherry pick we prefer to say find these diamonds in the rough that fit within the social objectives of the fund and still provide an attractive return. 
We believe that currently we're working in 35 countries and we have established relationships with approximately 100 investees for the EMF fund. Historically, the investment team has worked with in over 60 markets and with several multiples of the 100 that we currently have in the fund. So we believe that we will be able to continue to find these diamonds in the rough and um, continue to expand the portfolio in a very pragmatic and um, and uh, fundamentally sound way. Thanks, Chuck. And you talked about analytical tools used to measure the social performance of our borrowers and the impact on the end borrower. Can you expand on what EQ does on that front? Sure, no problem. One of the critical aspects of our due diligence is that we do a we do a, an environmental, social, and governance rating. We call it our, our ESG rating tool. And we've incorporated this tool. We've utilized the latest thinking in, in this tool and on this topic. And we score each investee on an environmental, social, and governance front. In doing so, we review the investee's policies, their procedures, and most importantly, their practices. And we benchmark that them with industry standards been built into our into our rating tool so that we can fairly and, and objectively evaluate them on, on this front. And one example that I like to use when I when I'm speaking to investors or people from out that are outside of EQ is that um, on the, gov- the governance front, uh, is, there's an overlap, right? Because we look at, uh, at governance in their financial rating tool as well. And we and there we look specifically at, you know, the, the adequacy of the corporate governance. Are there checks and balances built into the processes? Uh, do they have in- independence within the, the governing oversight part? Do they have the requisite experience, et cetera? That's where, what we focus on in the financial rating. For our ESG rating, we, we do continue to look at, at the, you know, the checks and balances and the robustness of the corporate governance. But we also look at the, um, you know, how diverse the board and management team are from a, both a racial and gender perspective. Is it reflective of, of the local society in terms of the ratio and, of men and women? And, uh, and we assess on that, provide us, we assign a score to that. And that's of critical importance to us because we want to make sure that we're meeting the, the, um, investment guidelines that have been set up for us so that we meet the investors' expectations on for the fund. Excellent. The next topic I want to address is that enabling capital, as we've mentioned, was created in January 2020, right at the doors of the COVID-19 pandemic, just a couple of months before lockdowns and all of the other measures around the world. It is now February 2022, and we are still weathering this pandemic in some regions more than in others. But COVID-19 created significant challenges for both the demand side from low-income borrowers struggling to repay their microloans and the supply side from the providers facing their own funding pressures. Microfinance institutions cater to hundreds of millions of low-income households around the world, which is a group that is particularly vulnerable to external shocks and therefore this pandemic. How did enabling capital navigate the pandemic and how is the company still navigating this pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I would love to tell you that it was easy in the beginning, but it, it absolutely was not. Pandemic first started, we, we weren't sure, you know, which direction it would go. We didn't, weren't sure if we'd be able to be let out of our houses. There, there was a lot of 
uncertainty when we launched EQ and when took over the management of the Enabling Microfinance Fund. But what we decided at that point in time was that we would stick to our knitting and we would stick to what, what had always worked in the past, which is to have a fundamentally detailed due diligence process throughout the pandemic. We recognized that uh, part of this, for part of the pandemic, this process was virtual and required us to to sort of change how we operate in terms of doing more video conference calls and um, trying to implement the same robust due diligence process virtually. However, I I think I should point out that um, the team was very eager to get out and and start traveling. And we actually started in early 2021 uh, traveling and, and the team hasn't looked back since. I don't think they've They've been in one place for too long in, in, in 2021 because we've been out there boots on the ground and continuing to, to navigate and, and try to find our diamonds in the rough. However, with that said, in the beginning, I, I, I did mention that we were quite cautious. Uh, I think we, we were looking, we set up several filters in the beginning to make sure that the institutions that we were working with were proactive, proactively managing their liquidity, proactively um, thinking about this new, this paradigm shift uh, with COVID in terms of, you know, where they should be focusing their lending activities to better support the communities in which they work. And in this sense, uh, we actually were together going through a learning process uh, with our potential investees or existing investees in learning out where, you know, capital should be directed. In early on, what we saw were there were a lot of international supply chain issues, and um, there was a heightened concern for food security. And so we, we started to focus more on working with investees that, that invested in, more in local businesses and local supply chains, as well as local farmers in the agri- local agricultural sector, given the, the emphasis that many governments were, were, were focusing on. And it actually worked out quite well. And it's interesting to see some of the, the shift that, that happened over that period of time. But um, for the most part, impressively so, most of the institutions that we work have been, are working with were able to navigate following a somewhat similar strategy. Now, this, this, means that, this doesn't mean that we sort of established a strategy at the beginning and, and stuck to it. In fact, we, we had several uh, modifications of the strategy as the COVID crisis evolved. But in addition to the, the, the other crises that have, that have occurred over the, over the last 18 months, it has served us well because we currently have a portfolio that's quite healthy in nature, you know, with institutions that have also been able to very successfully navigate this COVID storm. And after your 20, 20 plus years of experience in microfinance, how would you say that this pandemic changed microfinance, if it did, and in what aspects? Well, I'm not sure that I could. I would say that the pandemic changed too much with microfinance. I think what it actually did was to highlight the importance of microfinance in times of crisis. Basically, basically demonstrated that you know the importance of providing capital to these vulnerable communities so that they could continue to function smooth their these economic crises these economic shocks that arise from these types of crises so that they so that the people in their community could continue to have a um, or continue to improve their quality of life and many of these institutions that we work with are dealing with the vulnerable populations where 
an economic shock uh, on the scale of COVID can have a significant impact on these people, on these vulnerable population. But I think I'm extremely proud of being associated with uh, an industry that really stepped up for the COVID during the COVID crisis and continued to do what they do best, which is provide capital to these to this vulnerable population. But I mean, thinking about this in a little bit more, one of the things that I did see that I found quite interesting was the the concept of recovery-based lending and how this was rolled out in men, not all, but in many of the institutions. And recovery-based lending is a bit counterintuitive to, to most bankers because what happens in a crisis, when a crisis occurs, most banks tend to stop lending, cut credit lines, and focus on ways to, um, to limit the, the damage in their portfolio. What the microfinance industry did was actually to, to reach out to their clients to try to figure out how they could help them get through the crisis and get back on their feet. And so in many cases, this, was, this came about through restructuring loans, providing additional capital, and, um, and so that their clients could continue to operate their businesses and um, continue to be you know, functioning as best they could. And now this, of course, varied by industry, but, but for those industries that weren't directly impacted, this was essential to help, was essential for the microfinance institutions to, to continue to have healthy clients. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the pandemic highlighted the impact of microfinance more so in times of crisis, like you mentioned. And I would absolutely agree on that. I started working at EQ in January 2021. And right from the start, it was a very boots on the ground kind of approach. And what that allowed me to see is, well, I saw firsthand the transformative power that microfinance has, especially, like you said, in times of crisis. So I would like you to thank you very much, Chuck, for your input. Um, impact investment is a concept that continues to grow in importance from a personal standpoint and as a collective global effort as well. Enabling Capital now reaches over 300,000 micro-entrepreneurs. And for the importance that our work carries, we want to keep learning and share what we learn along the way with other people. We hope you enjoyed this third episode of Moving Money to Meaning and stay tuned for upcoming episodes. 